Welcome to the Performance Health Podcast. My name is Tim Karen. Today we're going to go through Ask Me Anything number eight. Got a really good bunch of questions, anywhere from a, advice for a young strength coach. Should I use a trap bar, an open bar? What's the biggest change someone can make with someone right now? Should I, should I prioritize running in the morning or lifting in the morning or vice versa? What is my favorite strength protocol? How do I lose weight without cutting calories? Access to modalities, what's the appropriate duration, frequency, or intensity I should be doing? What, when is my book going to be released? What should I do to peak for swimming? And then what is the develop, What is the preferred mechanism to develop aerobic capacity? So a lot of great questions this week. Super stoked on all of them. Hopefully uh, you guys really enjoy the answers. If you guys aren't a member on phpodcast.com, please get on there. The modules are on there. It'll definitely help. 50 of them. Principles, practical, case study, as well as the interview with a strength coach, all right there, along with graphics and images and and all sorts of cool stuff that you can dive into. Then also our order, a pre-order should be available very soon for our book Strength Deficit, both on the website and through the uh, through Amazon. That's going to be a hopefully a really helpful book to help you develop a protocol, a framework to really develop contraction types eccentrically or concentrically. And then finally, if you guys can, please like and subscribe on our iTunes podcast page. That makes a huge difference for us, and it makes a big difference in terms of the algorithm. So if you guys get a second, please do that for us if you can. Appreciate everyone's support. Hope you guys enjoy AMA number eight. So the first question we got is from Ryan Alexander. Ryan asked, if I had my own facility with access to ice bath, infrared, near red, or even sauna, what would I do in terms of duration, frequency, or timing? So I would come back and say this is twofold. One would be on a daily or micro scale, and then two would be on a more macro, which is weekly, monthly, or even annually. So on a micro scale, I start off with what is your actual bandwidth to do this on any given day, right? So one of the litmuses I tell people when they say, hey, I want to buy I want to buy a cold water immersion tank or tub. Like, great, awesome, good for you. Have you taken a cold shower yet? And if they have, and they're like, yeah, I've been doing that daily. Okay, maybe they're a little bit more willing to do something like that. But if they didn't, and they're not willing to do that, what is going to be something that's going to be more intense or a lot more commitment going to do for you? Right, so I would say that first and foremost is, all right, when we go out there and think about some of these things we want to apply on a daily, weekly, monthly, annual basis, what is your actual willingness to do that, right? And this is the whole home effect that I think is really important to work through and why I really struggle with a lot of remote-based training stuff is because a large part of that is, is the actual external motivation to do that when it's so available and omnipresent becomes less and less and less over time, right? How much, How long do we have in terms of actual value from understanding in-home training has a point of diminishing returns, whether it's a very singular thing that over time we start to become very bored or disinterested in, or on the other end, is it a, is it a lack of variation and losing motivation and incentive to do something from no progressibility? So, end rant there but i would say what is your willingness to do that is first and foremost and that determines what really time of the day you should think about doing that as so if i was going to say to you 
hey, well, hey, I want to do this daily. What time of the day would be your probably best chance to do this successfully? I don't like to wake up an extra hour early and do infrared near red sauna. Okay, well, then that's probably not a good time to do that. I don't like to wake up an hour early and do cold water immersion for 20 to 30 minutes. Okay, that's probably not a good time to do that. From an efficacy standpoint, there's probably merit to doing that earlier in the day or midday. But in regards to what your willingness to do that dictates a large part of what you're going to be successful with long-term wise. And for us to really definitively see from a more macro scale, you know, what is the actual, actual amount that we need to get some sort of effect, then we need to look at it from that perspective first and foremost. So the time of the day, you're thinking about it from the context of trying to get early exposure to short wavelengths near-red, infrared, in terms of red light therapy. We're looking at it from maybe an extended detoxification standpoint coming off of nighttime, so phase one, phase two tox, detox pathways, getting a morning infrared, near-red sauna. We're looking at it from cold water immersion, getting a little bit of calicolamine release from epinephrine, norepinephrine, maybe a little cortisol bump, and getting our body exposed to cold earlier in the day. These are all sound, logical things to do earlier in the day. But the willingness scale for me is probably the most important. And knowing human psychology and knowing what people's actual true nature is. And within home training or anything that's available to you at a very, very omnipresent or very open schedule. So you own it, you can do it whenever you want. I just come back to that example, looking at it from, are you willing to take a cold shower today? That probably tells you whether you're willing to actually go into cold water immersion from 30 to 40 degrees Fahrenheit for 20 to 30 minutes. Now, the, the macro view, I think, is really important here to look at as well. So from a week-to-week basis, how many minutes or how many hours do you need to accrue in any of these modalities to actually get some sort of effect, right? So from a cold water immersion, is it one minute? Is it 10 minutes? Is it 30 minutes? And I think this is where we look at the idea of hermesis and looking at it from the context of, well, the difference between a poison and antidote is the amount. If we start off with five minutes, and we know that we can sustainably do that, we're not getting much of a desired effect or outcome, increase the in, increase the in either the intensity or the duration, right? Go colder up to a certain tolerable limit or go longer at a certain temperature. And we look at just the same way we look at training, right? Can I sustainably do that and build up over time? Am I increasing my body fat level? Am I increasing my body fat levels or decreasing it? Am I doing blood panels and markers to see that? Is my resting heart rate, my HRV going in the right direction? Same thing with near-red, infrared. And when I look at this from the context of, am I recovering faster from workouts? Am my skin quality getting better? Are these like subjective measurements, you know, in terms of how I'm perceiving, I'm feeling, improving? And we can start to look at that. You might have hit the sweet spot or you might need to add a little bit more. You might have went too much. But I would say from a context, it's better to add than to subtract, just like cooking. So if I was going to tell you how much you need to get in a given week, well, how much time do you have, right? So I don't want you getting up an extra hour earlier to be able to do all these things and fit that in a given day. And then two, are you willing to compromise or exchange that with some of the other thing, something else that you might want to do, like going for a run or lifting? Like it's all stress. So if I just add a boatload of things to your day that you don't have time to do in the first place, is that an actual positive dynamic? I would say on average, probably 10 to 20 minutes of some sort of cold water immersion a week. So almost up to 60 minutes a month. 
I would look at it trying to get at least two to three exposures of 20 to 30 minutes of near-red infrared a week. So looking at it from a two-hour to three-hour perspective in a given month. And then I would look at it from a sauna perspective and trying to get an increased sweat response probably anywhere upwards to, again, two to three times a week, 20 to 30 minutes. So again, two hours a month. So if you're breaking this down in a week, 10 to 15 minutes of cold in a, uh, I'm sorry, uh, you know, in a week, 10 to 15 minutes of cold, we're looking at it from maybe an hour, an hour and a half to uh, heat or infrared. If you can double that up, great. And then in a month, we're looking at essentially trying to get three to four hours of heat and near red infrared in a given month, and then an hour of cold in a given month. And if that's too little, you can always add. If it's too much, then we probably really don't know what is the minimal effective dose to actually get a positive result. But I would, again, start with what is your psychology and how can you best approach this? And if you're willing to do that on a consistent cadence, you found that right time. And then if you want to take it a step further, there is really good evidence and support to say probably earlier in the day is better for most of these modalities. But in the regards to really looking at it from a human psychological standpoint and what in-home fitness options have taught us a lot is when it's there and it's available, it's probably going to lose interest and motivation and incentive to do it. So you're going to have to find what your bandwidth to do that in a consistent cadence is. So the next one I got was from admin site. Any advice for young strength conditioning coaches? So I would say this is a couple things. One being, obviously, anything you want, you got to work hard for. And I'm not going to get this generational concept going of like, oh man, the young people don't work hard nowadays. I just don't think that's true. I do think though there's an element of young younger generations, my, mine included, Gen X or generations before me, in their early part of their career, have a hard time disassociating from a job giving you meaning and purpose versus a job having to be something that basically you have to work hard at and gives you compensation. And I'm not trying to be this like just old disenfranchised, oh man, I've been through it all, don't go to the team setting, don't do this thing. But I do think there's an element of you have to prioritize what's really important to you and understand what your boundaries are for what you're gonna do for your profession. So work hard, yes. It's a very competitive, very saturated field with a very low barrier of entry. So you'll find a lot of people can make a lot of traction with very minimal minimal understanding of what they're doing with people. But the other end is, you know, if you have a poor work life or poor understanding or appreciation for your job is really not intended to make you happy, only you can make you happy, then you're going to really struggle in a lot of ways, right? You're going to become... You're going to become very, I guess, tangled in this very, very intricate web of uh, bureaucracy and politics and ego and pride. And what I would say is understand that your job is to do this for a client or athlete you're working with and do your best to understand how to apply certain, certain progressions, certain principles certain methods from a, a tactical perspective or the rationale as to why you're doing that and then from a logistic perspective on how to do it. And at the end of the day, 
be really, really conscientious of, I did my best based off my current level of knowledge and understanding of, of physiology and biomechanics and human psychology. And I'm going to get better again tomorrow. And I'm going to get better again tomorrow. And I'm going to read more and learn more and grow more. So that would be my advice is work hard, have some appreciation perspective of, of this is a job and then you have a job to do and you need to look at it from the context of this job doesn't define me. It doesn't, it doesn't give me ultimate meaning and purpose. Only I can do that. And by extension of helping others and, and doing good for other people. Great. I think that's a really noble and, and warranted thing, but the buck stops with, can you make money doing it? Yes or no. And do you have integrity and do you have the ability to discern between am I capable of making the right decision at the right time for the person in front of me, irregardless of what other people are doing around me that are not doing the right thing at the right time for the person in front of them? And can you keep pushing through to try to find a deeper level of knowledge and understanding of what is actually happening around you? So. I hope that helps. Um, you know, I tell with my young coaches and people that have interned for me, and to be, to be quite frank, I've had a really good success record with developing young coaches. I, I've had a lot of people go on to really prominent roles and positions that work directly under me, uh, and I take a lot of pride in this. But I think my biggest asset I have with developing young coaches is one: lead by example. I work really hard. I'm in here right now recording this at 5.30 in the morning on a Sunday. I think the other aspect is being humble and understanding what you really, really are contributing here to. You know, you're part of the equation, not the equation. And I would also say, too, of, of have this perspective of I am not complete and I need to keep working hard. And for me, my meaning and purpose comes from understanding more and and developing more insight and knowledge and not from I reach this position or I am working at this this setting or this team or this organization. My purpose is do I know more? Can I contribute more? And my purpose is obviously deeper than that in regards to family and my personal uh, my personal faith and all those things. But the other side of it is I think a lot of times when you're going through this process of climbing the ladder and trying to get to that zenith of getting to your position or or role that you want, you kind of lose sight of when you do get there, if you do are fortunate enough to work hard enough and talented enough and opportunistic enough to get to wherever you want to get, you know, are you do you realize along the way that that wasn't the goal all along? It was the process, it was the it was the aspiration, it was the people you're doing with. Um, so that would be my advice. I hope that lands in some way. Um, and I think from the context of looking at it from what I'm thinking about out loud about what I've done with my younger coaches, you know, I, I honestly think the biggest thing is just being honest and straightforward and saying, hey, look, are you willing to do this? And I'll tell people straight, frankly, like, I don't think you're about it. I don't think you really want to do this because if, you know, I see a lot of tells, you know, shirt showing up right before the session starts and they start showing up late. They don't like to work out. They don't like to read. They don't like to do all the little things, you know, and I, I, honestly, you know, people take it as when I tell them, I don't think you really want to do this as either a challenge, which is great. I hope they do. Or I am arbitrarily telling them that they, they can't do something. And to be honest, I've seen enough 
people with this very low barrier of entry job to that pull out once it starts getting tough or difficult way too early. And I think that tells a lot what you, I'd rather them find out early as opposed to late. And I, you know, just like the adage in terms of owning a business of hire slow, fire fast. I think when you're looking at it from pursuing a vocation like strength and conditioning, you should really cut bait quick if you realize you don't like getting up early, you don't like helping others, you don't like reading and learning about this. It's just not that kind of profession. You know, it's not the kind of profession that has this very lucrative, give you an opportunity to live the life that you want to live. You're working in the service-based industry, so you're working around other people's schedules that a lot of other people want to do that or think they want to do and, and are willing to do things that you, quite frankly, over time won't want to do. So what will happen is your willingness to do these little things like get here early, set up, break down, do all the stuff that you know is less glamorous, your willingness to train and exercise around that schedule, and your willingness to learn and grow when your time is very constrained or you're tired or you're just not motivated to do that on an annual basis determines whether you're willing to go through the, the actual crucible of getting into a position of helping others from a strength and conditioning perspective. So that'd be my advice to you is just work hard and be humble and understand what you really want and prioritize that. But understand too, like once you get there, it's not going to make you happy. It's just part of the next step and your job shouldn't define you. It doesn't have to make you happy. It just needs to be something that you can actually make a living in. And by extension, you could do something that you're proud of and you can help other people. Uh, only you can make yourself happy and only you can make yourself the person that you want to be. All right. So next one I got is from Cunches, trap bar or open bar, right? So the, uh, the question I think is really centered on the idea of do we want to close trap bar like our traditional hex bar or actual trap bar or a open trap bar? And what you're looking at it from the trap bar perspective is what does that exercise really allow me to do? So Coach Boyle will talk about doing a squat lift or a uh, kind of like hybrid squat deadlift position where you, if you really look at the bottom of a trap bar, people are squatting into that position. They're sitting their hips down. They're losing that hip hinge, so to speak, and getting a little bit more knee dominant uh, exercise versus what is the actual limit to that bar that's closed. On the other end, I can look at an open bar, which gives me a little bit more versatility with exercise selection. Like, right, I can do split squats. I could probably do a little bit more bent over rows. I can do something like a rear foot elevated split squat. I have a little bit more versatility on that. And then the other end is, you know, from a loading perspective, what's nice about most of these open trap bars is I can just tip it vertically and I can just slide plates on and off. And then from another perspective, I can look at it from the context of when I'm going into the bar, I don't have to tip one end and hope that it doesn't flip over on me. And I think these are little things, but if you had to ask me what would be my preference, I would say the open bar. I mean, we've, I've invested a lot of pers- a lot of our businesses' money in open bars because I think it's that much better of a tool. Uh, but I would also come back and say, what is your budget, and what is your cap- what is your actual uh, actual need for an open one? Are you for only going to do trap bar deadlift with it, or some maybe sometimes shrugs, and you're never going to do anything like like rows or RDLs or split squats or any other variations you can do with the trap bar, just get the closed one. You know, it's cheaper. Probably a little bit more up your what you need for that moment. Like, right, the tool, the tool is the tool. 
and it gives us an opportunity to do certain exercises and load those movements. Um, but if you're, you know that you want to get more variations on those, that, that bar, you know, maybe invest the extra money into that and you're going to get a lot more options from that. So I think, I think when you're really trying to, uh, you know, evaluate any equipment is trying to do a needs analysis of what does the tool do and what is it going to get me relatively speaking to another tool or version of that tool that might get a little bit more variation and the value I might get from that. So, um, hope that answers your question there. Next one is I got from Corey Hobbs. The biggest change someone can make right now to improve some health. Uh, this is a very broad question, uh, but I would also look at it from the other end is, well, what is the person not doing at a high level? That's really important, right? Sleep, hydration, vegetables, and then being mindful with eating or a big four, you know, so just inventorying that, right? If I'm not sleeping, that's going to be the biggest thing, right? Like, so I look at this from the context of the biggest change is the thing that they're currently not doing, right? So from a needs analysis standpoint and a strength and weaknesses standpoint and seeing things from a, I, I guess, an objective measurement standpoint, like what is their resting heart rate? What is their HRV? What is their blood pressure? Potentially, what is their body composition? And then start to extrapolate out from that of a, hey, are you sleeping enough? Are you hydrating enough? Are you eating enough fruits and vegetables? Are you being more, are you being as mindful as possible with what you're eating? You know, that would be where I would start. And then going into the next level is you're probably getting asked this question based off of someone not doing these things really well, but wanted to jump to a really far reaching conclusion that should be way down the road. You know, so the the person that, hey, I want to intermittent fast, or I want to do higher interval, I want to do high intensity interval sprinting, or I want to do Tabata, or I want to get red light or infrared, or I want to do sauna or cold water immersion. And you're looking at them of, I want you to sleep eight hours tonight. You're only sleeping three. I want you to stop drinking alcohol three to four days a week and pass casual drinking. I want you to stop eating high fructose corn syrup and trans fats and high and just being sedentary. I want you to start exercising. So I'd say just from the context of the person in front of you has this perception that the way they are is from a lack of doing something very extreme or very intense because they're associating someone else doing something who's maybe way farther down the road in terms of progression. And they think that's the gap. I think that's the missing link. And when you're answering this question of what is the biggest, lowest hanging fruit and you tell them of, you just got to sleep more. It's not sexy enough. It's not, it's not impressive enough. Uh, that's not the answer. They have probably have a built in conclusion in their mind before they even ask you, um, which this comes into the power of persuasion and influence. You know, this, the person that is 3% body fat, who's on tons, tons of uh, PEDs and, uh, or has incredible genetics telling them you're, Thing that's you're missing is intermittent fasting and cold water immersion and they go to you and say well i really want to do that and i just want you to give me permission to do that i think you have to double i think you have to double down on knowing what's actually true and realistic and saying okay well let's start with sleep let's start with hydration let's start with vegetables let's start with being mindful with your eating let's start with exercising three to four days a week let's start to doing more more activities of daily living let's get you up off of the couch and start getting better habits that's never going to land the way way they you want it to, but it's what they need to hear, and that's what a professional does. A pro tells tells a person what they need to hear, not what they want to hear. And what you do is you basically just say, "How do I convince this person 
in a cool and interesting way that these are the things you're doing. So from a very, very broad stroke, uh, let's look at this from the biggest thing a person can do. It's what they're not doing that they need to be doing. And then from a daily, uh, from an actual implementation standpoint, it's going to that person and convincing them that's what they need, not what they want is what's going to help them. So the next question I got is from Tyler Groth. So running and lifting on the same day, which should be AM and which should be PM, right? So uh, Tyler is doing a lot of triathlons, a lot of distance stuff. So what I would say is whatever's going to have the highest CNS, CNS focus, central nervous system, should be prioritized earlier in the day. So fuel substrates, when is my glycogen highest from a catecholamine production standpoint, norepinephrine, epinephrine, even things like neurotransmitter-wise, dopamine, acetylcholine, looking at things of when is I going to be able to, one, perform at the highest, and then two, recover the best, is going to have the huge, the biggest impact on when I should do something. So something that's anaerobic, something that's without the presence of oxygen, very high CNS input, should be prioritized early in the day. So if I'm doing a program with plyometrics, with speed work, with Olympic lifts, with higher intensity lifts, that should be prioritized earlier in the day. If I'm doing something a longer duration, that's a little bit simpler, that's a little bit more, a little bit more redundant, like I'm going for uh, a five mile jog, if I'm going for a 10,000 meter row, if I'm going for a 20 mile bike ride, all that should be prioritized later in the day that doesn't have as much CNS impact, but also goes into this high-low approach of it doesn't need as much recovery time following. Now, the caveat to that is going into a peaking cycle. So if I'm looking at this from the context of your training chart for a triathlon, I think you look at this from an inverted perspective of prioritizing what you need to do to peak for the event that you're doing. So again, if I'm doing a triathlon, the biggest thing to do is to start to look at how do I accrue good miles in terms of biking, swimming, and running versus prioritizing something that, you know, is this arbitrary, like we need to do high CNS stuff in the morning. Doing high CNS stuff in the morning is based off this concept of that's going to be the biggest ROI from a anaerobic phosphogen standpoint and recovery standpoint and hopefully risk mitigation standpoint. But alternatively, it goes into this next level. If that's not the the biggest ROI for you to be successful in the events that you're doing. So what I would turn around and say is if you're getting ready to peak versus I'm in this off season mode of just trying to get stronger and faster has two different perspectives. So if we're in, in training mode for a triathlon or a marathon or anything that's distance oriented, you got to prioritize the primary thing you're doing in the event earlier in the day. And what that comes is the caveat of you need to adjust your, resistance training, your power training around that, right? You just simply can't do as much high intensity volume or high threshold things after doing a 10 mile run or a 15 mile run or a 50 mile bike as well as you could if you flipped that or inverted that, that schedule. So all things being considered, off season, high CNS stuff in the morning, oxidative stuff, low CNS stuff in the afternoon, in terms of prepping for a specific event, prioritize the event first, but then make some concessions in terms of what I'm doing from a from a threshold intensity standpoint in the afternoon with my resistance training, my plyometric training, or even direct 
speed work and I'm putting that up in quotes because I think that's just gonna be more of like maintenance of mechanics as opposed to actually doing deliberate sprinting or anything that's gonna require very, very high threshold input. All right, next I got is from my guy, M Stronger. So, uh, you know, he asked, what is my favorite strength protocol? So I don't think this is something that I can answer very simply. Um, I can look at this from twofold. One being, what do I do with, what is my go-to strategy for clients or athletes versus what is my personal favorite? Uh, you know, I don't, I don't have a favorite for clients and athletes. I just try to be as, as objective as possible in regards to choosing or selecting the right protocols based off of what that person's biomechanics and physiology are. So I, I can't answer that, but I can tell you what my personal favorite is in regards to developing strength for myself, um, in which, you know, hopefully, uh, hopefully we can understand or appreciate that that perspective. Um, generally speaking, I, I like to do uh, lower reps, higher sets stuff. So something along the lines of like a ten sets of two to three, uh, maybe even potentially like a, a higher rep wave loading thing, like three two one, three two one, three two one. Uh, a higher rep cluster or a higher set cluster. So like five sets of one plus one plus one. Uh, that's my personal favorite. I, I just, I do well with these like under 10 seconds, under 20 seconds, relative strength or power based uh, type of duration sets, but doing a lot higher volume of sets. And we can go on the whole Charles Poliquin neurotyping. I, I think myself as kind of a, a wood type, um, someone that can probably handle a lot of, a lot of frequency and a lot of volume and a lot of, a lot of sets um, I come from a uh, genetic background of migrant workers from you know, Irish and French Canadian. So we did a lot of construction. We did a lot of manual labor. So I th- definitely think my, my genetics actually put me in a position to handle that. Um, but also, too, when I look at it from a systemic outcome, there's a, there's a definitely like shortcoming to that as well. When I look at now my oxidative ability, my recovery rate, uh, I really need to be conscious of just not doing that exclusively. So my personal favorite is any strategy or protocol that does high sets, low reps, or keeping my total time and retention 20 seconds or under per set. Um, but that's definitely not a go-to strategy I like to use with my clients or athletes. I like to think about this a little bit more objective. But I hope that answers your question. All right, from a uh, great Instagram handle, Yava the Hut, how do you lose weight without cutting calories? So it's a rule thermodynamics, calories in, calories out, that energy is not created nor destroyed, it's just transferred from one medium to the next. So you have essentially three strategies you can use for losing weight, objectively, right? We'll go into a little bit more nuance after that, but when we look at this from the context of, okay, I either can cut calories, I can increase my caloric expenditure, or I can do a combination of the two. So my BMR, my basal metabolic rate is this, and then I look at it from the level of, in order to be in a deficit, I need to increase my expenditure, decrease my actual input of calories, or combine those two to be able to burn calories. But what we're asking is, I'm not trying to cut my calories below my basal metabolic rate, which essentially leaves this, this how do I lose weight? Well, it only kind of comes into really caloric expenditure. Personally, I think this is a... Uh, it's a difficult strategy to maintain. Um, you know, if you really want to lose weight, probably you want to be very conscientious of cutting calories and some some micro dosing effects. So 
cutting your calories by even 100 calories a day is a is an important step to do. Um, self-control, impulse control, all these things have a huge part of the whole process. But if we're looking at it from a caloric deficit standpoint without actually cutting calories, we need to increase our expenditure. Um, and what we can look at here is, okay, well, if I really want to become efficient, I need to improve my oxidative capacity. So if we look at beta oxidation, if we look at burning fat and going through nucleogenesis, gluconeogenesis, then I need to start to look at what is the pathway that's most derived in terms of utilizing fatty acids, and that's oxidative. So zone one, zone two, keeping a very consistent, long output base over time, right? So if you look at, if you wear a wearable like Aura Whoop, or if you wear any kind of heart rate monitoring like Polar or MyZone, you know, you want to look at staying in zone two for almost 60 to 60 minutes in a session, 30 to 60 minutes in actual, like an actual day. And then from there, you want to look at potentially looking at depleting more glycogen. So getting upwards to zone three, zone four, or hitting this like 30 to 60 second window of, of high intensity output. And then the best, the best tool to really burn calories at a consistent basis. I mean, okay, non-exercise, exercise, non-exercise energy expenditure or need. We can look at from the context of building more muscle. Muscle is just simply more metabolic than fat tissue or any other tissue for that matter. So if I look at it from a combination, if I want to increase my caloric expenditure, I need to get enough steady state cardio to actually support oxidative pathways to burn fat. I need to get a certain amount of resistance training to build lean muscle. So looking at two to three days a week of that. And then I need to get some sort of maybe potentially glycolytic work, whether it's high intensity interval sprints or circuits that actually utilize this glycogen as an energy substrate. It's a good way to do that. So bottom line from a thermodynamic standpoint, we don't want to cut calories, but we need to adjust our energy our energy expenditure, there is a, a pragmatic way to do that and getting a couple hours a week of zone two or oxidative capacity work, getting a couple hours a week of phosphogen work, aka resistance training or, or direct speed training or plyometric training. And then getting a, you know, a very, I would say an hour uh, tops of glycolytic work. Um, and then from there, if you want to get a little bit more direct in block periodization and looking at it from volume or intense of a volume based strategy like accumulation or intensification it kind of gets a little different but from a a general conjugate well-balanced week and you're trying to increase energy expenditure i would say that's probably a pretty good place to go you know in terms of looking at it from if i do that with someone without adjusting their calories probably not i would say we probably need to adjust calories as well and we can go on a whole other conversation off of, of proteins, carbs, and fats. But I don't think that's necessarily where um, the question wanted me to go. So I'm not going to go there. But I would say from a general perspective, have a very well-balanced energy system profile in terms of training and not just trying to burn calories to burn calories. All right. Then from Concrete Pete, man, the Instagram handles on this is so good so thank you concrete pete 18 when is the book going to be released so editor just finished uh she's just wrapped up all of the the actual images and then all of the graphics and that thing is ready to be pre-ordered here soon so uh i sincerely hope by the time we're listening to this podcast that the pre-order 
link will be available both on my website, phpodcast.com, as well as Amazon for pre-order. So that is coming extremely soon. Thank you for the support on that. And uh, I'm fired up to get that to everyone else, everyone out there. Uh, the next is I got Dylan who asked about peaking for a singular event and what should be the last phase. So you got sprint, you got distance, you got kind of intermediate. Um, I would say from the context of, of looking at this from a tapering standpoint is if someone's trying to peak for a specific event from a bioenergetic standpoint, if it's short sprint, if it's intermediate, if it's longer distance, makes a big difference of what your last phase should be and when should it end. So there's a really good resource, Tapering for Sport, that kind of goes through a lot of these singular event or these singular bioenergetic system events and when we should peak. So for more anaerobic, alactic, or phosphagen system stuff, you know, we want to think about tapering volume, not intensity. So your last phase should be a fairly high intensity based training pro- protocol and should start to gradually decrease in volume. Typically for a major event like a, like a national or some sort of qualifier, you're thinking about a 10 day volume based taper. Now on the other end, for a distance, you know, you want to look at this from potentially looking at it from, and I look at this from the three big levers to pull in terms of, of getting some sort of tapering effect or getting some sort of transmutation effect are frequency, volume, and intensity. And when you're looking at this from a objective standpoint, across all spectrums, you're going to cut volume from everybody. Like, right, we're going to gradually decrease the amount of volume going into a specific event. But there's a caveat to that. If they're a distance athlete and they're doing longer duration intervals in the pool or longer duration intervals on track, you know, like how much volume can you really taper someone running an 800 meter sprint in uh, on track and field? Right, so if they're peaking for running for one to two minutes, how much volume really is that? You know, and I think that's a hard part to really decipher. You know, objectively, we can look at this from the standpoint of what Majika and Taper for Sport would talk about is, you know, we want to be conscientious of getting them the right biogenic input, but not overly stressing them and allowing for some sort of adaptation going into that that peaking type of dynamic. So it becomes really challenging to look at it from, all right, I don't have a lot of blood lactate stuff going on. I don't have a lot of uh, actual looking at this from what are their fuel substrates during training. Uh, there's some cool tools out there like Moxie and even like something like Lumen that can look at what you're actually utilizing from a fuel substrate training standpoint. But as a whole, like it's really hard to implement this stuff at a high level with the team setting. So easy one is the, the sprint athletes is, Get a high intensity phase, a low volume, maybe just one. I tell everyone in season for anaerobic alactic sports, just give me one good set today. I just need 30, I need 10 seconds of work. Everything else just prep or cool down based off of that. And in regards to that, that's pretty simple. Frequency two to three days a week, you know, probably pretty fine, especially with the pool. Hopefully they're cutting down there. So they're getting a couple of good high intensity inputs. You'll watch though, psychologically, some of these anaerobic athletes, they're really going to struggle with the tapering um, just from a standpoint of they think they need to be doubling down and doing more. So you have to be really upfront with this is the amount we're doing today. I want this to be your focal point. I want this to be the best quality effort, whether you're doing Olympic lifts. So I want really one good set of cleans. I want one good set of snatches. I'm going to do some dynamic effort with a squat or a hinge. 
I'm going to do some kettlebell swings or plyos. Like I want really good efforts on this last set here or this exercise. Uh, and that's it. You know, this is all I want. 60 minute session. I'm going to basically ask you for three 10 second all out burst of effort. Everything else aside of that is hopefully leading into really good performance and pre preparation and trying to close some gaps from a structural balance standpoint or, or structural or just from a uh, resiliency standpoint. When it gets a little bit more challenging, it goes into these volume-based folks or distance-based folks. And I would say probably the biggest lever to pull instead of, of volume, which you're going to have to cut volume, but I think you do that through cutting back on frequency. Because what happens is one of these things that these guys do, and again, looking at it from they double down going into a peaking phase, and they get really stressed and anxious, and they feel like they got to do more, is you've got to adjust from a frequency standpoint what you do in the weight room with them. So I would say cut back down from two to three to one to two and be very cybernetic about it and look at it from as objectively as possible. What's their body language? What's their wellness? What's their preparedness? If you're tracking things like jumps or Nord board or grip testing, you know, what is the relative marker in that? And you got to just simply say, all right, we're going to have, we're going to have a, a, a rest day or we're going to have a regen day or we're going to have to cut back on something. Maybe you just basically look at it from, I'm going to cut back not only on frequency, but duration of the session. You cut down a 60-minute session, a 30-minute session. You know, and that's what I would say from the context of the actual physiology of recovering or adapting anaerobic phosphogen, anaerobic glycolytic, oxid aerobic oxidative is drastically different. And the rates for peaking are going to be drastically different. And I, I can imagine what it feels like when you have 60, 60 swimmers, males and females, who are going to respond differently at different times anyway, and you have different events going on concurrently, you have to really manage this. And you're still having to execute on really good technique and really good quality. You know, I, I would say that what you're looking at is to have a strategy and looking at your sprint, your mid, your distance, and saying, this is what I really want to do with these folks. They're all going to come in Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 5.30 in the morning. I'm going to do my sprint. They're going to give me three really quality sets in a given 60-minute session. My mid, I'm going to cut back on I'm going to cut back on volume, but I'm going to tell them I'm going to give me maybe two, maybe one to two really good 20 to 30-second all-out efforts. And then my distance, I'm going to probably cut back on frequency, but if they're required to come in that third day, I'm just going to do some sort of regen with them. And what we're looking at from the total volume in the pool, the total distance in the pool, and what you can do in the weight room, and just talk to them. You know, ask them what kind of tapers have you done, and what tapers really work well for you, and just work and give them some sort of permit, permission and autonomy. Because at the end of the day, you know, it's it's important that you have some sort of at least appreciation for what they need and what they need to go through and what they want to do, versus on the other end. What can we really do from a perspective of 60 people training Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 5.30 in the morning, multiple events training simultaneously at a very, very specific tapering strategy for each? That's not easy, uh, but I would say go about it with a very, uh, hopefully, well-thought-out approach, but a well-balanced approach from you and them. Uh, so I hope that helps, Dylan. All right, and the last question I got is, Ryan asked, what is your preferred strategy for developing aerobic capacity? So first off, let's look at your metrics. What is your resting heart rate? Is it 
sub 60. What is your HRV? Is it 50 plus? What is your actual blood pressure? Specifically looking at your diastolic, is that sub 70? If that's, if that's sub 80 or even sub 70. And when I'm looking at those three, your resting heart rate sub 60, HRV plus 50, or on the other end, looking at it from the context of what is your diastolic blood pressure being sub 80 to 70, I can start to think about where you need to spend some time. If all those, if you see someone who's training three to four days a week and they have plus 60 resting heart rate, minus 50 HRV, and then plus 80 diastolic blood pressure, they're spending too little time in either zone one or zone two of their energy system profile. They're spending too much time in zone four or zone five. They're just too anaerobically inputting. So I would come back and say, that should be your original diagnostic. And the, and the actual amount of time spent there determines what their actual output, output measures are from those three metrics. So if I have a person plus all that, I need to figure out ways to convince them they need to go less resistance training or anaerobic oxygen system training inputs and get more oxidative inputs. And what you'll hear a lot of times is, hey, if you do high intensity interval sprinting, you'll see a rapid improvement in VO2 max. I think we should take some considerations off of, a lot of times that research is actually predicated off of sedentary, obese, non-trained individuals who are gonna have a rapid response to everything. If I take a person that's very well-trained, that's very anaerobically developed, and has very poor, really, vagal tone, right ventricular, right left ventricular function, poor arterial function, poor capillary function, probably means they have poor mitochondrial function, that doubling down on more anaerobic inputs is probably not the best strategy here. What I would look at it from the context is you need to start to accrue some time aerobically over the course of a week. So potentially getting zone one, zone two for upwards to three hours a week is probably a really good start. And it could mean going for a long walk. It could mean doing something redundantly, getting on a bike. Uh, it could mean doing something like a rower. It could mean doing something like very functional circuits for extended periods of time. It can mean a whole plethora of things. But what I would have to do is start off with the original metrics and then build in a profile that gives them some sort of impetus to actually do that. That their limiting factor is not anaerobic development, but aerobic capacity. And what the other thing I want to mention here, this is really important to note for you, yourself, or working with clients, is a lot of times these are redundant, simple activities that hopefully doesn't need a lot of coaching, just needs a lot of motivation to do. And when you're really looking at this from a context of, of aerobic inputs, I look at this the same way as like at nutrition. That large part of the responsibility of these redundant, elongated activities is going to be upon the individual to do. A large part of what someone's going to eat is going to be responsible for the person eating it. You have to put in a perspective of why they need to do that, how that's going to help them, and frame it in a way that they're motivated to do. Because if not, they're not going to make any aerobic adaptations. They're not going to make any aerobic improvements. And they're going to look at this from the context of it's just excessive, long, and boring, and I don't understand why I'm doing it. You have to do a really good job of framing it either to yourself or to the person you're working with that this is really important. 
just because you don't do it in the weight room or with something that's a little bit more complex doesn't mean it's not important. And I think that's sometimes often forgotten or lost. And the other side of it is, and I get it, like helping sedentary, obese populations and doing circuits and high intensity interval stuff because they're bored or disinterested in things very quickly is not your job. Falling into this trap of doing what someone wants based off of of some sort of illogical reasoning is not what a pro does. A pro looks at the metrics, a pro looks at what that person needs, and finds a way to frame it in a way that that person really can benefit from. So bottom line is when you're really looking at this from the context of developing aerobic capacity, start off with your blood pressure, heart resting heart rate, HRV. I could even look at it from a resting uh, heart rate recovery standpoint. If you're not improving at least 30 to 50 beats per minute or beats per minute coming off a of max max exertion in zone five, well, you're probably not aerobically developed enough. So you need to do more time in zone one, zone two. I need to get a lot more time in that direction over course of a week, over course of a month. And when we start to break this down, you know, hopefully that leads into some sort of great routine where you wake up, you do your zone two cardio for extended periods of time, and then you go about your day. Hopefully it doesn't lead into bleeding into other things that you should be doing and helping you perform at a high level. Um, so that's all relative speaking. And that's from a general perspective. This isn't trying to peak from an aerobic distance event. This isn't trying to get someone ready for a bodybuilding show. This is just looking at this from a general health perspective. We can get a lot more nuanced on what way to go versus uh, general health versus performance. But I think as a whole, probably, you know, two to three hours of zone two cardiovascular work a given week is a pretty good place to start on average. And then we could look at it from objectively, if I'm good in my aerobic development based off my metrics, I think that's a good spot. I think I don't think you need to do that much time um, personally. Um, so you find what works for you. You find what's the necessary amount and then you go from there. All right, guys. Well, that does it. So uh, one last quick shout out. Strength deficits coming out. Uh, that will be available for pre-order on our website and through Amazon. If you're not a member on phpodcast.com, I suggest you do that. We have 50 modules going through principles, practical case studies, and actual the interview with Strength Coach all in one single source platform. So you can just work through each one of those in, in, in progression to become the, the coach that you hopefully you want to be. So I appreciate you guys. Make sure you guys are staying tuned. we got a great module this month. We're going to go through contraction types. It's going to be a definitely lead into strength deficit, and that was strategic. So really appreciate you guys' support and staying on board and keep asking these questions. Um, hopefully they're helping.